Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You could subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt. I'm the editor-in-chief of War Room, and I'm joined here today by Dr. Ron Granieri, who is our new podcast editor. And so this is a sort of momentous occasion. We're going to do an official podcast pass-off today, uh, even though you'll still hear my voice on occasion because we've, we've got some still in the queue, and I'll pop in uh, here and there uh, when, when I want to or when, when somebody wants to to talk to me. But Ron, welcome to the War Room. Thank you, Jackie. It's uh, good to be here. Yeah, we're really happy to have you at the War College and as part of the War Room team now. Uh, so I'm going to let you introduce yourself uh, to our podcast audience and fans. Right. Well, as I as I take the jeweled marshal's baton <laughs> from you, Jackie, I'll make sure to set it down carefully next to me. It's great to be here. I, it's, I am new to the Department of National Security and Strategy here at the U.S. Army War College. I'm a historian by training. Uh, I Got my PhD at the University of Chicago uh, late in the previous century, and uh, I've taught at a number of different schools. Most recently, at the University of Pennsylvania, where I was at was at the uh, Lauder Institute for Management and International Studies, teaching uh, in the MA MBA program. But originally, I'm a historian of uh, modern Germany and modern international history, so teaching history of diplomacy. So it's very cool to be here at the War College and at Dennis to to talk, uh, to teach in uh, Weapons 1 and Weapons 2. I get a chance to uh, to talk about Thucydides and Clausewitz and all that good stuff yeah. and about the making of foreign policy decisions. And so, Ron, you're not new to the podcast scene either, right? People no, that's may, true. People may actually know your voice already. They may. I, uh, I've, I've done some work with the Foreign Policy Research Institute where I have uh, done podcasts for them and also host a podcast uh, uh, interview program, monthly interview program, Geopolitics with Granary, which you can still find on YouTube if you look. So not only my voice, <laughs> but also my uh, bespectacled visage. Uh, this is this is important. That was one of my requirements when agreeing to do the podcast that it would be audio only. Um, it, but has, it has it has distinct advantages. Yes, audio yes only. indeed. Uh, so we're going to aim to keep the podcast uh, sort of what it what it is, um, right? Fun, entertaining, informative, uh, provocative, short. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna let Ron sort of take the take the wheel and see see where it goes and expect him to put his own spin on it. So I'm really excited to see that as we continue to think about what War Room adds to the defense community, to the national security conversation uh, that is growing, I think, more and more interesting and complicated uh, just about every day. I Absolutely. And I think that the, the growing uh, roster of podcasts in particular, people find that these kinds of conversations can bring, out, bring across information in ways that uh, journal articles alone mm-hmm. probably can't and perhaps reach a, a broader audience and get conversations going. And so we hope... Uh, I hope to build on what's been done before to bring people in who might talk about things that they've written, but uh, that the conversation is to draw people in and then perhaps direct folks right. to other things. Yeah, absolutely. So at this point, I would like to sort of turn it over. We're going to continue the conversation, uh, not just chit-chatting about podcasts, even though we probably could do that too, um, but actually to think about some of the things that we 
have addressed and are addressing in our teaching and as we're approaching this, uh, what Ron said is called weapons. I tend to not call it weapons. Um, but war policy and national security, which is a course that we're teaching right now. Um, and thinking about how we approach the, the teaching of international systems, strategy, war, and national security policy mm-hmm. uh, in, let me see how I can say this, in a maybe interesting sort of domestic political environment, in an interesting international political environment, and trying to help our students understand uh, what that is. So, right. I mean, I, this is where uh, there's been a lot of talk uh, in my preparations for coming here and in, talked about at the beginning of this uh, academic year about uh, historical mindedness. And this is an interesting aspect of it too in, in understanding uh, national security policy that we need to think about the way that decisions are made, the way that they uh, that policies are developed, the way that they're put into practice, and the interaction between, uh, let's say, the facts on the ground, such as they are, and the way that those facts are interpreted by the people mm-hmm. making decisions. Like, I, I don't think that this is a matter of, uh, it's not a matter of, of objectivity versus subjectivity. Uh, and a lot of people like to think of themselves as realists when they think that they are responding to uh, facts the way the world really the way the world is. really is even though they then uh, dodge the question that how I may say, think the world really is um, maybe a perfectly honest attempt to understand how the world really is but that's not necessarily the same yeah. way my adversaries are going to see it or even my my teammates yeah they've won a particularly important sort of like linguistic battle right Right. because you have real in your name that gives you an advantage and and an edge up and especially in a world where the stakes are really high Mm -hmm. uh, where costs in like time and blood and treasure are are real and sort of corporeal and in that sense so um that connection of realism or theoretically to the real world, I think, is uh, one that's important to interrogate. Indeed. And this is also where when we use case studies or we use historical examples to try to understand decision-making, uh, there can be an initial tendency to to either use uh, the measure of success or failure as proof of whether somebody mm-hmm. was smart or dumb or whether they, were, whether they were understood the real circumstances or not, when I think that can lead us astray. So we need to, we need to be able to understand why decisions are made. And if they turn out badly, uh, you cannot simply dismiss the people who made the decision that turned out badly as being dumb or evil. Sometimes they are, but not always. But not always. And I, I, I always talked about this as the, the, oh, what fools they were school of history, which <laughs> right. is everyone in the past Uh, is likely to make decisions that in hindsight look dumb or stupid or ill-informed or or racist or sexist or whatever it is. And that, again, that may be, that may have been the case, um, but we have to understand the context, understand what they, what they knew, what they, how they saw the world. uh, And that's something that historians, I think, are particularly adept at Right, and bringing and to the table it is, but and the the danger for historians is they can either just sort of shrug their shoulders and say, well, everything is so complicated, and you have to understand mm-hmm. everything to understand anything, and that's not a good way to go. Uh, but it is important that we need to understand, we need to to try to understand more about the about decisions right. that are made, and then we can get a sense for. Uh, why the why a decision moved in a particular direction and what we can learn from that because sometimes perhaps it is the personality of the 
decision maker or the, t- the person at the top that shaped a policy. Sometimes it is the nature of the organizations uh, that are mm-hmm. and how they work. Um, sometimes it is the larger political context. Right. Uh, and you know, there, there can be mismatches between right. it can, I mean, it could be culture. It could be bureaucracy. It could be processes. Exactly. It could be intelligence failures. It could be uh, any host of things or the combination right. of those things. And those things historically that are at play are also in play right now. Absolutely. Right. And, and we would like to think, uh, I think anybody who studies national security policy, right? One of, the, one of the smartest people talking about national security policy today, who also is a podcaster, right? Lauren DeJong-Shulman talks a lot about how process is her valentine, right? That process is the most important thing. And she's right to a, to a large extent, even though process doesn't guarantee that everything's going to turn out well. But, uh, but having a, a coherent process can at least help you to work out some of the kinks rather than sort of wait to the end and see how it turns out. But, but even there, we all need to have a, uh, a healthy understanding for uh, the, uh, the possibilities of people getting stuff wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's where individuals need to have humility about their own decisions. And then we need to have an, uh, humility when we try to understand decisions in the past that we're not just so, so much smarter than those folks who got it wrong back then. And the empathy to understand that as well and to understand sort of how things how things happen um when we talk about processes right Mm -hmm. sometimes i think we can struggle trying to figure out what the right process is or what the normal process is well because you can you can talk an issue to death right and that's not an answer right you don't you don't necessarily there's a one of my uh one of my favorite Simpsons episodes is the one that shows when uh, a movie clip from when McBain is elected president um, and the uh, and his staff comes in and says, Mr. President, we have five options for you. And before the guy can even finish talking, McBain says, number three. And he says, well, why number three? Don't you want to look at them? I was hired to lead, not to read. Um, that this is the temptation, right? As we have this image that this is what leaders are supposed to do is make those decisions mm-hmm. they need to make. And yet, I don't think that's how we would want all decisions to be made. But we, do, we also don't think that every decision can only be made after a four-hour seminar discussion. And it's, it's developing uh, a sense within, within a policymaking team uh, of the contributions that the different parts of the team can make uh, that uh, will then help the decisions to be better. Uh, even though there's no guarantee that they'll turn out to be mm-hmm. correct because the enemy has a vote, because there's fog and friction, right? How many other right. cliches can I bring into this conversation? Those are two solid <laughs> ones, right, to, to start. Well, this is something that as, you know, I have experience teaching in, in you know, lectures and seminars in uh, about security studies, about diplomacy. I only have a few weeks or a couple months so far of teaching it here at the War College. And I'm curious, Jackie, you know, how do you feel about the way that our students are encouraged to or how they succeed in thinking about how, how decisions are made? I, you know, I think that's a really interesting question. And I haven't, I haven't been, I've been at the Army War College. This is my third seminar when I taught at the Air War College before. But one of the things that I think we, we have to really balance is our students come with a professional ethos and a professional sort of mindset of being apolitical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and fundamentally, the decisions we're talking about often in a class, you know, whether it's national security policy or policy and strategy or whatever it is, are happening in the political realm. So the first thing that we maybe have to do 
is get our students to to think about what it means to be political and to think about um, how they can participate in political conversations without being partisan or without playing into sort of like domestic political context. And so I think that's, that's one challenge. And I think we do a pretty good job of helping like distinguish and disambiguate that. Um, The other thing I think that we maybe struggle with and I, and I'm not, I'm not sure we do as good a job here is helping students distinguish between like the norm, the institutions, the processes, the law, the way it is on paper, the way it's supposed to be the sort of like platonic ideal Mm -hmm. of decision-making versus the utter messiness well, and, and, of decision-making in the real world. And that, I think, is we're back to the, the, the issue of the real world again, right? Yeah. The, the real world doesn't necessarily make things clear and obvious, right? The more real things are, the more complicated they are. Right. And I, I, I'm glad you bring up that, you know, the word political is, 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 uh, creates so much trouble in people's heads because often to, to describe something as political is to make a value judgment, usually a negative one. Mm-hmm. When we have to understand that politics, uh, if we think of it in terms of any decision has to be made within a larger political environment, right? That's neither good nor bad, right? It just is. It's to, just a, it's just a f- sort of statement of fact, and we're back to yeah. But that's why you can't. So you can't sort of say, well, my decisions, my decisions are based on on the right motivations, where yours are merely political and real things, and, and, and real yours, things, and yours are just political. Or my favorite is. Uh, well, that's just spin or that's just narrative and that doesn't matter. Um, so as someone who studies narrative, <laughs> like that makes me want to pull what my very short hair out. Well, and, um, and because we need to think too, especially when you're talking about making policy in a democratic society, uh, mm-hmm. then any, t- any policy decision is going to have to be explained, is going to have to be spun, is going to have to be uh, to put into a narrative. And that doesn't... The, the the narrative and the explanation is not something is not some evil addition, right? That is actually an integral part of the whole process. Because right. you can only you can only make policy if you get elected, and you can only you can only maintain support for your policies if you are able to explain to the electorate why you're making these decisions. And if you're unwilling or unable to do that, then you're in the wrong business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and in the same way, and this is where you know, we talk about levels of analysis in our in our sessions uh the idea of you know the individual leader versus the state system versus the international system and once again right there is there's there are some intellectual approaches that make the the emphasis on systems not only the most useful but also kind of want to claim that's the most the most virtuous or the most uh, or the most uh intellectually honest but it's somehow pure it's somehow purer and yet once again, I don't think that, you know, just because we, we say there are three levels, we're not ranking them. We shouldn't be <laughs> ranking them, right? We're, these, aren't, these aren't bronze, gold, and silver tiers right. of membership. The, 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 <laughs> the system level of analysis, right, isn't like on a higher pedestal. Right. Even though it certainly can give you difference, a different sense of, of, uh, of decisions that are made, but mm-hmm. you know, you're never completely free from the personality of the leader. Uh, or the decision maker yeah. or decision makers. And you're never completely, you can never completely abstract a policy decision from the nature of the regime in which the decision's being made. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's and where... And at, at the same time, you can't pull it out of the, you can't pull it out of the system. You, right. You, right. These are, these are embedded in sort of 
they influence each other. Right. Um, you know, and I think that's where we, we, when we come up with different ways to appreciate decision making and, and how it's done and, and the results of decisions, um, the goal should not necessarily be to, uh, to isolate everything down to the one, the one explanation that explains mm-hmm. everything, um, but to understand the way that different factors interact. Right. We almost never get to one thing that explains everything. Right. I mean, that's it, as, as satisfying as it might be, that seems mostly to be a fool's errand historically or right. in analyzing contemporary policy. Um, and I think with contemporary policy, it's interesting um, because some some of the explanations have become so personalistic, right? That we right. can we can ex- we can explain everything by virtue of the personality of say the president or something like that. Right. Um, that we seem to have forgotten some of the other things that we know, mm-hmm. uh, the system processes um, that also that also matter. Indeed, and and there is not a single leader uh, on earth. Uh, who dropped out of the sky, right? That everyone, every person who is governing whatever system they're governing is a product no of that deliveries. system. No stork deliveries. Pretty, pretty sure about We're pretty that. We're pretty sure, pretty sure, right? No, no stork deliveries. No, no, uh, no, uh, you know, lizard people from outer space, okay. right? That they're, that I'll trust you. That even that every individual in one way or another is a product of the system that produced them, that that uh, that they ended up leading. And this is whether that person is Barack Obama or Donald Trump, right. or John Quincy Adams, right? And that's where, so understanding the society that produces people and the and the political sort of context that allowed that person to get elected is an important way to mm-hmm. understand where they come from. Because I think that, and then this is especially when we're talking, when one's talking about one's own country as opposed to another, another country, right? We have, we have no problem at all uh, assuming that the leader of another country is the complete embodiment of that country's right ethos, whatever, however we want to describe it. But when we talk about our own country, we're of course aware that even the most popular leader was not elected by everybody. Yeah, that there are fractures. <laughs> that there are fractures and, and differences. Divisions and differences. Um, and I think, yeah, one of, one of the things that I always emphasize in, in the classroom is if you, if you imagine how complicated you, you know the United States is, mm-hmm. um, then shouldn't we also assume that... Iraq or Guinea. That's right. Or Thailand. Or Thailand. Is just <clears throat> as complicated. Yeah. Uh, maybe differently complicated, right? Maybe there might be yeah, different yeah. different fractures, different um, different dividing lines, different cultural and historical things that matter. Um, but isn't I mean, isn't it like the height of arrogance to assume that that everyone else is sort of like monocultural and Exactly, and, and and that's that's where you know one has to get get outside one's own uh, one's own view. To use another pop culture reference, right? There's one of the funniest pieces in Hamilton is when King George rolls out near, uh, halfway through the play when he says, "I hear George Washington's yeah. retiring. I didn't like, know people were allowed to do you that. Could do that. Um, <laughs> that you know, and and you realize that can be really difficult." to understand or when when people open up the newspaper and they find out that you know they actually have elections in other countries right. or that there's a different leader and that this new leader might not have the exact same opinions as the leader that came before um that uh, and this goes back to the idea that you know politics is not uh politics is not some extra addition to life right politics is 
is is a big part of life right it's, it's part the of atmosphere the, right? it's the, like to <laughs> we'll, we'll see how many cliches we can get in right but right. it's the it's the water that we it's swim the in. water we swim in there you go um that you know you can't you can't escape it and to pretend that you can talk about decision making or national security without fundamentally talking about politics um is is i think it's absurd and yet um, and yet it, you think about how much that either spoken or unspoken attitude drives a lot of analysis of, say, the role of domestic pressure groups in mm-hmm. the making of foreign policy, right? It's one thing to talk about the power of this or, the, or the influence of this or that group um, to see what how certain policies are shifted, but they're, they're, one can drift into the position to assume that any influence that any group has is somehow dangerous and illegitimate because they're taking right. us away from the purity of this or that policy of the decision. real world that's out there right. that we just need to get a handle on right and, and the idea that you know that to use the old the other old uh, you know, uh, international relations cliche right that if, if we're talking about the international system that states are black boxes and whatever happens mm-hmm. in there doesn't matter of course what happens in the boxes matter yeah. just like what happens in the heads of the leaders matters and the more that we make an effort to understand those things the better we'll be able to understand decision making and decisions that have been made right so when we think about decision making, right, and I, we, we talked about this a little bit b- before we started recording, there's this idea, and I think this is part of the political environment that we are in, about the nature of facts, mm-hmm. um, and that we could make better decisions if we just had all the facts, or we could evaluate decisions if if we just knew what facts the leader sort of had at their disposal. Right. Um, but... This always, again, as somebody who studies narrative, the 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 facts may be what they are, but those facts always have to be put in context. They do, and and we need to think, and we need to widen our range of metaphors for for things like this. I think is like the uh, facts in a in a political decision. The facts are like the chocolate chips in a chocolate chip cookie, right? You know, you can ident- you can see them. And if you wanted to, you could pick them all out individually and line them up next to the cookie. Um, but they only make sad. sense. But we very sad, right? It wouldn't be very tasty. It wouldn't look very good. Um, and and so they only make sense within that larger context, mm-hmm. right? You know that if because and this goes back to the idea of understanding, say how presidents are elected, or understanding the the institutional tensions between different uh, government, uh, different cabinet secretaries' positions, or between Congress and the White House, to understand those things provides a context for individual facts um, and similarly when you look uh, um, internationally right one can say right you could say well uh, North Korea uh, should or should not have nuclear weapons right you can have a decision you can have a discussion about that um, you can have a discussion about the meaning of a particular uh, a particular choice or a particular negotiation but uh, you can't just you cannot extrapolate simply from uh, from individual data points uh, a larger understanding of world events unless you're thinking about the context about mm-hmm. you know what does it mean if if North Korea has a successful nu- uh, a successful missile test or not missile test right to use the the um, uh, the argument that we use in class actually to talk about constructivism uh, is a uh, oh we went like 25 minutes I know we without, made it. without like mentioning that? without mentioning the c word how about that <laughs> um that uh, you know the the number of nuclear weapons that great britain has is less causes less alarm in the united states than the number of nuclear weapons that north korea has right, right? that's yeah, that's both obvious but also we need to think about that or when we say you know we don't like countries that have secret nuclear programs 
I don't know. I can think of at least one secret country that has had a long time secret nuclear program that doesn't bother we people in Washington be using at all. Secret in air quotes. In air quotes, right? Yeah. This you this quote. I'll, let me put I'll put down my Marshall's yeah. baton again <laughs> to make my scare quotes. But but that's the thing is is that so we need we need to be aware of how you know there are facts, there are things that we that we will be concerned about, but that we're always ordering the facts in a particular right. way. And putting and interpreting them. And interpreting them. Um, yeah. So with with this idea of in interpreting facts right and and you and you did mention constructivism right which is the the third of like the big ir paradigms that we talk about here and it's always the one um in my experience it's that students and and faculty and many other people it's not just students um really struggle with this Mm -hmm. idea but it seems to me also that we have in this complicated and complex political world we have more and more evidence um, that constructivism makes sense mm-hmm. at an intuitive sort of level. It's I don't know, in some ways, right? Constructivism is the uh, uh, it's the the love that dare not speak its name in <laughs> politics, right? Is that nobody wants to admit that they are constructivists because they think that somehow they're they're undermining their own. But it's not their, real. Their, it's not real. When actually, uh, so I, I made the I just committed the great historian sin. I said the word actually. I apologize. <laughs> I owe I owe seminar twenty a quarter for that. But I will say that that um, that of course we construct our understanding of what the facts mean. And then we may, we may try to convince others to see it our way, or at least we will make policy based on how we see the world. Um, that doesn't make that doesn't mean there's no it doesn't mean there's no facts. It just means that facts alone aren't going to explain everything. Right. And we need to be honest we don't with just ourselves pile about up that. Facts on one side and one or the other or a third side and sort of decide who wins. Just like we don't decide who wins wars by like piling up all the stuff by and counting up. up who has the most. Correct. I mean, in a way, right, we think about a, a battle is the interpretation. You know, Sometimes the, the side with the bigger battalions and the more troops wins, but not always. Yeah. Um, and, the, and what is the difference? The difference is how the facts, right, how the individual units are put into place, yeah. how they're moved around. Uh, that's something that people, as you say, people understand this yeah. intuitively, but they still shy away from accepting the possibility that, that we, we, that we are making reality yeah. of, and, and as I say that we, we can be aware of this and still believe that, you know, that, that facts matter. So we want to make sure that when people have debates and discussions that everybody understands what we're arguing about. Right. That it's not that constructivism and, and narrative and all of the interpretation, all the things that we've talked about aren't just so much BS. You, you in fact can't and shouldn't be able to, to get away with just anything correct um some people should call you on it right journalists peers subordinates leaders all of that um that the the facts still matter but the facts only matter in in context right and you know and 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 let's say some facts uh some facts are going to weigh more heavily than others right you know the gravity Mm -hmm. is going to is going to determine an awful lot of questions about how you move items from one place to another um, but whether you should move that item from one place to another is not going to be built around it. There's there's not one single hard and fast rule. And so I, I think about our whole educational model here at the War College is built around seminar discussions. We talk about how we're going to learn from each other. Um, and that means that we respect the fact that there's something to talk about, right? Our discussions are not simply somebody says, well, X is true, and everybody nods their head mm-hmm. and says, yes, absolutely right. right? We wouldn't, we, and it's we not wouldn't a think that's a good seminar. 
of of facts or names or dates or doctrinal sort of definitions that all of these things are up for discussion up for and and as i say right that freedom of speech and freedom of thinking is your freedom to uh to be wrong occasionally right but it's not your freedom from being wrong Right. That's every now and then. Right. You, you will say things, you will do things that will turn out badly and you will have to then reexamine them and wonder whether that decision was proper. But if we if we value the interplay of ideas and discussions, we have to understand that interpretation is is not something uh, is not something on the fringe of what we do. It is exactly what we do. All right. So maybe now that Ron and I have convinced you that you are all constructivists. <laughs> Step one complete. <laughs> right. This has been the historian's uh, game for a while because uh, it's the it's the theoretical paradigm that historians I think are most most drawn to usually. Um, so now that you are all constructivists, undoubtedly and unabashedly, uh, this is Jackie Whit, and I'm going to pass off the baton to Ron to close us out. Thank you for joining us for this episode of A Better Peace. I hope to have many more such conversations, and I hope to that you will join us for those conversations and that you'll let us know what you think about what you've heard here today. Until next time, for the War Room Podcast of the U.S. Army War College, I'm Ron Granary. See you next time. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.